Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. On the podcast this week, I'm speaking to award-winning novelist Carmela Shamsi. I thought for a long time about how best to introduce a writer as renowned and respected as Carmela. I toyed with the idea of listing off her many accolades and achievements, but each time I read them out loud, I found it didn't capture the experience of reading a Shamsi novel for the first time. Instead, I'll tell you that those who know and love her work talk about it in the same way they might recount a chapter from their own lives. Those who have yet to read one of her novels soon find themselves the subject of a swift conversion. Home Fire, with its beautiful and heartbreaking merger of the personal and the political, had a profound effect on me. And so too did Carmela's latest novel, Best of Friends, which is published today. Best of Friends is an exquisite portrayal of friendship, of coming of age both politically and physically, and an exploration of how even those closest to us can still remain unknowable. Kamila Shamsi, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So you were raised in the city of Karachi, and by the sounds of it, books and writing were a part of your life from a very early age. They were. I mean, they were very much part of my family's life. You know, I mean, the the sound of of my childhood is my mother's fingers on a typewriter, and I remember when she, when I was about ten or something, she got a, a computer, and suddenly the sounds were much more muted. And it felt odd that something was missing um, in in my life. But everyone in my family seemed to always be reading or writing mm. something or the other. My mother was a an interviewer, features writer, as well as a book reviewer, as well as a writer of fiction. And, mm. and my grandmother was always writing in her spare time. And my great aunt had been a published novelist. But also, you know, this was, I was growing up in the 80s. And it was a period of military rule in Pakistan. And the thing they don't tell you about military rule is it can be very boring because <laughs> dictators typically don't like much by way of fun. And and so a lot of my memory of of those days is just basically lying in bed reading. And that was for, for a long time, day wasn't complete unless I had read a book in it. Right. And I would finish a book and I'd put one down and I had to immediately know the next thing I was reading, you know, sort of go in and, and physically touch it and say, right, tomorrow I'll read this book. So there was some kind of safety in the world by knowing there was always a book that you were either reading or about to read. One always lined mm. up. You're never in that awful gap yeah. sometimes you can find yourself in. I know I certainly do. You know, you've just finished a book and you have no idea, yeah. what, you know, what your next read will be. Um, and that's very interesting that, you know, under this you know, military rule, you know, reading, I can imagine people's preconception would be, oh, you know, you would read to kind of escape yeah. the more sort of terrible aspects of that. But actually, from what you're saying, you know, one of those main things was boredom, was actually escaping the, the monotony of such a rule. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the terribleness of military rule wasn't particularly something I was aware of as a 10-year-old. Or, I mean, it was there, of course, but, yes, but it, yeah, it wasn't in my daily life. But, you know, what do I do with my time was very much there in daily life. And, and so that was what I did. And it was an interesting thing because I was growing up in Pakistan, but English was my first language. So I was reading novels in English. Right. So I was always reading about 
somewhere else. And for a long time, I thought that meant that fiction all happened somewhere else. That, you know, you couldn't have yes. fiction that was set in the Karachi that I knew and lived in. Mm. It's quite a common subject that comes up for those that we interview on mm. the podcast about, uh, you know, reading as a child and that setting an initial idea in people's heads of, of what a book should look like and what the characters in a book should look like and where they should be. And the journey has always been that there's always eventually been mm. a point of thinking, ah, oh, actually, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. There are other avenues to explore. And, and that's that's interesting that for many of the people we've interviewed on mm. the podcast, that's a, a common theme. But I also actually want to talk about the flip side, too, because I know there's a lot of conversation on the importance of seeing fiction that reflects your reality in life. And, and I, I experienced that in, in my own life in, in terms of my reading and how important it was finally to see that actually the kind of place in life I was living was something that could be found in fiction. But I think it was also quite wonderful to yes. read books that at an obvious level had nothing to do with my life and still feel that they were so intimately about me or that they were written for me. You know, when people say, who yes. is your audience? I say, well, I was never any writer's intended audience for the books I read when I was growing up, but they were still mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the pleasures of fiction is actually how you, you find these entryways and the sort of sympathy and, and mm -hmm. just imaginative entry point into worlds that have nothing to do with your own. Yes, absolutely. And it's, you know, amazing. Sometimes you, you come across the idea that certain stories mm -hmm. aren't for certain readers, but it's not true at all. Like when I think of some of the books I've really emotionally connected with I mean if you if you put a sort of I don't know a character profile side by side of my mm -hmm. life and the character's life you would say well these two yeah. people have nothing in common between the real me and the fictional character but you know as you say no mm -hmm. it, it goes deeper than that than just sort of personal experience and that's the wonderful thing about reading fiction I think is that emotional connection between different people and stories that, as you say, don't necessarily have to be a reflection of their own experiences. Growing up, are there any particular titles that stand out for you that really, you know, captured your imagination or captured your, your soul as a, as a child? So when I was very young, you know, the, you know my, I had these sort of snippets of memory that have to do with, you know, books like Peter Pan, Winnie the Pooh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But my, mm. the first really strong sort of sustained memory I have of reading was, I must have been, oh, I don't know, I'd say seven or eight. And my parents had gone to visit close friends of theirs. And these friends had children my age who I was friends with. So I went along thinking I'll play with my friends. And for whatever oh, yes. reason, my friends weren't there. It was only the adults. So I ended up having to, I mean, it's the <laughs> horror of every child's life, you know, having yes. to sit in this room with these grown-ups talking. Oh, and I was right. sitting next to a bookshelf and I just sort of leaned over and looked and they were, you know, it was an adult bookshelf. So there was nothing much of interest. But between these adult books, there was a title that caught my eye. And that title was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Oh. And I have such a strong sort of sense memory of pulling that out and sitting down to read it and just opening to that first page. I don't know whether this is a faulty memory or not. I was a very fast reader. But in my memory, I sat there and I read the entire novel cover to cover as my parents sat and talked to their friends. And it was just this oh, wow. completely immersive experience of absolute wonder of basically I went through mm. the wardrobe with Lucy and discovered Aslan and Mr. Tumnus and yes. all the rest of it. Yes. For anyone who was a particularly into reading when they were younger, I think that experience just chimes mm. with everyone of, of discovering a book that just 
it's almost hard to put words on just you know mm. does transport you uh and i have to tell you i'm getting a little goosebumpy just remembering yes, yes, just remembering <laughs> just remembering that moment and false memory or or not mm. i think it the false memory still attests to i think how much you 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 connected mm-hmm. with this book and how much you enjoyed yeah. it going out of that is there you know as you were entering the beginning of best of friends those years of being a, a teenager of growing up of sort of becoming aware of your own growing up that's quite an interesting time because you might still have connections to those books you enjoyed when you were younger mm-hmm. as you, you know you're aware of your own growing up and you're a bit like oh you know I'm too old for those now whereas I find yeah. when you're older you sort of reconnect with those those earlier readings but are there any books from that time as well that you remember having an effect on you yeah so best of friends is set when when the two girls are 14 mm-hmm. and it that was an interesting reading moment there is in the book a sort of very affectionate reference to Jackie Collins. Mm, yes. There, it was a period of time where, you know, and of course this is related to growing up and sexuality mm. becoming part of your life mm. and all kinds of things that that books writers like Jackie Collins, Judith Crane, Sydney Sheldon, you know, suddenly all my friends including my friends who weren't readers were reading these yes. books. Yeah. And my parents I learned later sort of looked at each other and thought are these appropriate for <laughs> kids this age and they and they had i mean my mother told me this much later they had a conversation with each other and, and discovered that the one thing they would never do is to say to any to either their children this book you can't read mm-hmm. they just believed that was wrong that you have to allow people and particularly young people who love reading to find the books they want to find mm-hmm. so what my mother did instead was she also started handing me other books other kinds of books okay. and so on one hand there was Jackie Collins and Sydney yes. Sheldon and then she was handing me Anita Desai Salman Rushdie mm-hmm. Kazuo Ishiguro Peter Carey and I was finding something to to sort of love in those so there was this two different streams except i didn't see them as two different streams it was just you know these are all books i love yes. in different ways but you know i suppose this goes back to the thing we were saying earlier as you sort of grow up and everything you're reading is it, it belongs to a different world and when i started writing reading writers from india that's that started to shift because the world they were writing about was much more familiar and then when i was 17 I read a book which wasn't fiction and most of my reading had been fiction until then. It was a memoir called Meatless Days by a writer called Sara Soleri. And the phrase, phrase meatless days would have been familiar to anyone going up in growing up in Pakistan because at some point there was a meat shortage in the country and so the government said on two days of the week, I think it was Wednesday and Thursday, no meat can be sold in the country. It was a kind of austerity mm. measure, I suppose. So I'd always grown up with this phrase, oh, today's a meatless day. Mm. And then to see this book, which had this as a title, and it was a book that was sort of published in America and the UK where the phrase meatless days surely didn't mean anything. And it felt like an inside joke that I knew what meatless days okay, meant. Yes. And of course, within the book, it becomes a metaphor for, for loss and things mm. that, are, that have been taken from you or are absent. And it's the most brilliant and beautifully written book. And it was the first time that I was reading a Pakistani woman writing so clearly and frankly mm. about politics, about sexuality, her own sexuality, mm. about complicated relations within the family of course there were a lot of feminist writers doing this in other languages in pakistan mm. in urdu and sindhi and others but but my reading was all english and it was so strange and mm. wonderful and i kept thinking how is she doing this but doesn't she know you know in my very i don't know 17 year old concerned with everything sort of way 
doesn't she know people in Pakistan will read this and <laughs> judge her for it? <laughs> you know? um, and I look back and, and when I sort of think of books that changed my life, when I read that book, I wasn't aware that anything specific in my life had changed, but it just, the world felt different mm. in a way that I really couldn't put my finger on, but I just knew the world felt different. And and when I went to university a couple of years later, I went to America and the first couple of weeks I was incredibly homesick. Mm. And I remember sort of very, that sort of first week, just feeling homesick and not knowing what to do with it. And And I was in the library and I thought, I know, I'll see if they have a copy of Meatless Days. Oh. And they did. And it was so powerful to just find that book and to enter those familiar sentences yes. again. And I think I had that book checked out from much of my first oh. year at university. But that, I think that shows, doesn't it, how we can, um, whether because of what's in the book or even I find where you've read the book, it can really ground itself in a particular place and reading that book takes you back to that particular yeah. place and time. And of course, at that age as well, I feel like when something really does speak to you in a different mm. way to when you're a child, but when you're a teenager, and as you said, sort of becoming aware of your own sexuality and the beginnings of sort of who you'll be as an adult are emerging, when something really connects with you there, I think you remember it for the for the rest of your life and you remember yeah. healing because mm. something shifts and it, it never quite goes back to where it was before. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested. I know you do this podcast a lot. And I wonder how many people, when they're talking about the book that changed their life, actually talk about something they read before they were 25. Mm. You know? I feel that makes me feel now that we should have created some sort of spreadsheet. <laughs> and you, yeah. like, someone says, yeah. OK, and yeah. when did you read this? How exactly that would be really interesting mm. to look over yeah. and see when that lands mm. at what point in their life. I always feel that that is a, a particularly uh, tricky question, which we'll get to later on in the podcast. I find it almost a slightly mean question. Yeah. Your life can change yeah. in so many different yeah. ways. So what, what is meant mm -hmm. by that? But the next question I will ask, obviously these days, am I right in saying you're predominantly based in London yeah. these days? Yes. You're now a you know an award-winning author. You teach as well. And I was just interested to know in terms of the books that you come across mm. in your life now, if there's any recently that you've read you've particularly enjoyed. Well, fairly recently, I read Ali Smith's companion piece. And Ali mm. Smith is one of those writers who I will read everything she's written. And I feel a great sense of excitement that I'm living in the world at the same time as her. So as each book is coming out, I'm reading it oh, then and there. Um, yes, yeah. and, and that's particularly true, of course, for her work, because, you know, the last five years, she's or six years, she's done this amazing thing of writing a novel a year, and, you mm. know, which is sort of written in the moment, about the moment they're written in, which is an extraordinary thing that mm. almost no other novel in fact, there is no other novelist I can think of who could pull that off. And of course, she did, did these four books, The Seasonal Quartet, and then we thought mm. she was done. And then like a gift that we needed, <laughs> she produces companion piece, mm. which is so beautiful. And if you've read Ali Smith's work, it's sort of, there's so much in it that feels familiar. Mm. The sort of love of language, a sense of intimacy and, and closeness, um, this playfulness and sort of stories within stories. And I think one of the things that I, I really love and so deeply admire in her work is she has this ability to write books that are full of generosity and warmth. Mm. And yet she's absolutely clear-eyed about the awfulness of the world. And she puts that in the books. And that, that combination, that balance, I think is, is really amazing and, and something I think that's necessary in the world because it's so easy to either not look at what's horrible or to look at it and only feel dispirited yes you know but but to look at it and still retain your sense of the generosity and wonder mm. of the world that that's something 
incredible, I think, that she does. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, something not exclusive to, but quite unique, again, within fiction, I feel, something that, again, Mm -hmm. fiction can offer in terms of helping us sort of navigate the world that we live in today. Because yes, when you, I don't know, when you read an article online or uh, come across one on, you know, social media, you react to it with the initial response mm-hmm. and you're getting sort of the, the information. But the wonderful thing, yes, with fiction is you can, it gives you time to reflect. And as you said, I, I like that sense of warmth to that as well, which is not easy, particularly if you're dealing with the subject matter that, you know, you are passionate about and you are understandably yeah. you know, angry about mm-hmm. and as you say amazing that she is writing and reflecting on things that are sort of happening in the moment because I find for me to have a, a decent opinion or thought on anything sort of mm. years have to go by before it's all settled in my you know as before the dust is settled so that is quite an achievement it is and I mean and that book opens with the scene where there's there's a woman who is alone at home her father is very sick in hospital mm. it's in the height of COVID she can't go and visit him She's terrified about what's going to happen mm. to him. She's terrified about getting COVID because, you know, this was a moment where it was the most scary thing. Yes. Um, and she she has, a, the phone rings and it's someone who she hasn't seen for years who says, I was just trying to enter the country and I was held at the border for hours by immigration officials because they didn't like the fact that I have two passports and they see something suspicious in it. And you think, okay, a book that starts with that, we've got COVID and we've got horrible immigration rules together, and this is going to be really bleak, and yet somehow it's light and funny, mm. and but while also being really very serious at the same time. Yes. If you don't mind me asking, would you say that's something, because from what you were saying there, that talking mm-hmm. about difficult subjects, but mm-hmm. still managing to explore, you know, warmth and the kind of the softer sides of life, that's not quite the right term, but, yeah. you know, those elements, mm-hmm. is that something you would say you you aim for in, in your own work as well? Or would you say you're going for something different? I would be very delighted if people found that in my work, let's say. Okay. I mean, so if we if we sort of go back to home fire, I mean, just I often get asked about the title, and I say, well, I wanted that dual sense that on one hand there's this huge conflagration and things mm-hmm. are burning down, but on the other hand, the you know the home fire should also suggest a hearth and welcome mm-hmm. and and intimacy and 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 to have both those things going at the same moment is the kind of thing that I'm I'm really interested in. Uh, in trying to do in my fiction. No, absolutely. I would say, you know, as a bookseller, when I'm speaking to someone about Home Fire, let's say I've popped it into Mm. their hand and I'm talking about it. It was Mm. actually, well, not one of the first books I read, but as a junior bookseller, I just sort of started out. That was one of the ones I I first remember sort of reading and then thinking, oh, as a bookseller, I can, you know, I feel you could explain the story and people would read again, I think, the sort of darker points in it, but it it wouldn't reflect the warmth that Mm. is within those pages and the the intimacy and the and the mm. love and that was certainly something that struck me so I in my humble opinion you do absolutely achieve that I'm very pleased to hear it thank you <laughs> <laughs> and okay so yes yeah, so the Ali, Ali Smith companion piece are there any others that stand out for you and you know when we say a sort of a last book that could even be over sort of the past year it doesn't have to be something read recently. I was last year I was I was judging the goldsmith's prize so I got to read a lot of books and it was wonderful I mean it's a really fantastic prize and the winner was Isabel Weidner for Sterling Carrot Gold which is one of those books sort of you know you open it and on page one there are matadors in Camden Town <laughs> And you think, what is going on here? But somehow it all makes sense. And, and I mean, that was the first book in a while that just completely in the best way 
sort of blew the top of my brain off right. or the top of my skull off. Right? <laughs> but it was, it, it felt unlike anything else, the way they use surrealism as a kind of way of talking about politics. And yet, and again, I, you know, clearly this is the sort of thing I love. At its heart, it's a, it's a novel that is about these very strong ties of friendship and a, a family that is formed not by blood, but by affinities and love. Uh, yet it's set in this world which is so mad and so surreal and you've got spaceships and time travel um, but you also have actual uk immigration laws and detention and uh yes it's brilliant it's really brilliant that's something i do very much appreciate in uh fiction is when it can stem utterly sort of into the the strange and yet yeah. emotionally feels very centered i think you know that's yeah. um, that it, it makes me think of uh no one is talking about this that was on the um book of shortlist mm -hmm. last year yeah, it was a book absolutely quite similar it you know starts off uh it's so bizarre it's a brilliant insight mm -hmm. to sort of online humor and and that sort of world that exists there and then just sort of halfway through suddenly it takes you somewhere else entirely and it, it, yeah there's a fantastic swerve into heartbreak really <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I would say similar thing. It sort of mm. blew my mind because I was yeah. just there thinking I'd enjoyed the ride. And then I was looking back and thinking, well, how how did they do that? How yeah. is that achieved? But that's part of the enjoyment of sort of not not seeing behind the curtain and just enjoying the, the ride for, for what it is. But I feel we're coming now to that question that I always feel rather mean for asking, which is a book that changed your life. It is a hard one. And I think, and I've been thinking about why it's so hard. Because, of course, you know, as I'm now going to talk about how central books have been to my life and how important they've been. And, and there are ways in which you could say Sarah Soleri Meatlessly changed mm. my life because it showed me a kind of writing and thinking that was possible. Or you could say The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe changed my life. Yes. And I think the reason why it's so hard to answer it is because. Very rarely does a book change your life in that kind of, when we say something changed your life, we think of a sort of a dramatic event. Yes. You know, yes. you know, I turned down this avenue instead of that and I met the person I would spend the rest of my life with. Or yes, yeah. I was on my way to business school and, you know, got into a bike accident and never made it and then just ended up being an artist. Yes. None of these things have happened to me. But uh, <laughs> whereas I think the effect of a book, it, I think it sort of lands very softly inside mm. you and there are these ripples and you're not quite sure mm. later on if who you would have been if not for this book but you also don't really know how to, to put in words exactly what it did i know there are times in my life when i've read a book and i felt the world shift and of course it's me shifting you realize that later yes. the world is the same you shifted um one of them was was reading Virginia Woolf for the first time, which was when I was at university into the lighthouse. And and I remember sort of sitting and thinking, there's something in here. I don't even know that I knew to use the, the phrase female sensibility. But the way and of course I had read many women writers before, mm. but there was something in to the lighthouse that made me think in terms of writing and gender mm. and and the way a story like Mrs. Ramsey or Lily Briscoe's, that these are these extraordinary stories, but much of the reading I had been doing to that point weren't about stories like that. Yes. That they weren't focused on the inner lives of women in mm. quite that way. And why was that? But also, why did I feel so sort of awakened by it? So it's it sort of, you don't feel my life has changed. You suddenly feel, 
oh, I'm thinking a different thought. Yes. And of course, that is what will essentially mm. lead to changing your life because it changes your brain. Absolutely. You know, like you said, with the water and the ripples, I suppose it's, mm. it's more a collective effect on you. You know, as you yeah. say, it's not this big sort of bolt from the blue. Is that the correct Yeah, bolt from the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Of sudden change, but kind of gradual, slow, a kind of shifting. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- yeah, that's quite a profound question to ask about the if you took any of those books out, how different would I be now if I hadn't yeah. read, you know, X, Y or Z? Because, um, yeah. it, you know, it, that's impossible to imagine because it's such yeah. a collective part of your uh, or becomes such a collective part of your kind of mental Mm-hmm. You know, that there's probably books that have all of us, you know, have changed us in, in some tiny way that we actually can't even remember the title of now. An interesting thing, you know, of working in a bookshop is people can tell you about a book that they absolutely loved. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it was so wonderful. And they're so desperate to give it to their friend that they can't remember the title or the author, you know, which is just <laughs> a really interesting thing that it's an emotional connection as opposed to a factual Oh, it's this book run by this person, published by this, you know, we don't think about that. We think about the the emotional aspect. Absolutely. And right now I'm I'm reading the new Jennifer Egan, which is fantastic. Oh, yes. um, and I know that there are characters in it that recur from Goon Squad, which I loved. Mm. I couldn't for the life of you tell me which characters because I'm actually <laughs> I'm very and it's it's not saying it's about Jennifer Egan, it's the way I read. When I read fiction, I don't remember names of characters. Oh. And I'm actually very bad, largely, on any plot details, but I, I always remember how a book made me feel. Mm. So I know I loved Goon Squad, and I know that there was that I found the intelligence of it extraordinary and, mm. and the way the stories work together. And I mean, I can talk to you in all those kind of ways. To ask me to name a character in it, couldn't do it. I fully sympathise with that. <laughs> I feel as a bookseller, I should be able to remember these kind of key details, but yeah. I find myself very often just saying, oh, you know, using words that express how it made mm-hmm. me feel as opposed to, you know, going so-and-so wakes up mm-hmm. in this place and this happened. Yeah. That's not how I think many people remember them because that's not really ultimately the mm-hmm. the, the key, the important thing about stories. So Virginia Woolf and the um, Goldsmiths Prize winner that you had been on the, the committee of. Uh, if you don't mind me asking about that, I'm interested because, of mm-hmm. course, authors, you've been through the one side of it, of having your book, you know, longlisted, shortlisted and then winning. How do you find being on the other side of that process? Is that quite tricky? Uh, I've done actually a lot more of being on the other side. I've, I've been judging. I've judged quite a number of things. And the first one was probably about 16 or 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been on a lot of judging committees. And and you know, there's always that moment where you think, why did I agree to do this? Because there are so many books. <laughs> there are so many books and so little time to read it. And then there are always the books that you really don't want to be reading. And mm-hmm. but <laughs> but then you have these discoveries of books that wouldn't have come your way otherwise. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more thrilling, I think, than or few things more thrilling than to be able to be part of this judging committee and give a prize to someone. And because of that, that book goes places it wouldn't have otherwise. And, and mm. you know, the writer's sort of career from there, you know, moves in a particular direction because we know how important prizes can be for all kinds of things. So I enjoyed and And actually, for, I've never found myself in a situation where I've hated a book that's won. It just, yes. all, I mean, people also, that's sort of the, the dread compromise choice where, no one can agree. So, you know, the book that wins is something that no one loved and no one hated. <laughs> I've never been in that situation either. And it actually really helps, I think, 
if you're a writer, to understand the way prize committees work and, and not to get too hung up or try and second guess what's going to happen. Because at the end of the day, it's three or four or five people in a room mm-hmm. talking about books. And yes. we're all readers and we have friends who are readers. And you know those conversations can go at anywhere and that mm-hmm. a different five people would have a different kind of conversation and make different decisions. So I think all the, the judging I've done of prizes has made me sort of feel with, with sort of actually being submitted for them that, you know, there's just a certain amount of luck about the, the people who'll be in a room and the conversations they'll mm-hmm. have. And, and you can't put too much, obviously, when you win, you put a huge amount of weight, but, yes. uh, but you can't sort of sit around trying to say, well, this judge you know, I think we like my work and the, you, you yes, don't know, yeah. you don't know. The conversations in the room just have their own dynamic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anyone who's been involved in a book club yeah. will tell you it, it's yeah. amazing, you know, the different things people can find in a book. What for one person was transformative and mm. beautiful and they might even describe the book as, you know, heartwarming. And mm. the other person say, oh, well, actually, I found this book very depressing. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't link with it. It is, again, one of the wonderful things about about fiction, about reading is just, it's such a personal experience. As you say, I'm sure it's just down to that dynamic of those Mm. in the room at that particular time. There there is, yeah, I can say as a bookseller, there are too many good books out there. Well, not too many, of course. We're we're happy with Mm. how many there are. Every day, new books will come in and we're saying to ourselves, oh, this looks good, this looks good. And I have a to read pile at home which attests to, mm-hmm. attests to you know how many yeah how many great books are, are being published including of course your own yes. best of friends which is out on the 27th of september which is for those listening to this podcast we're recording it ahead of time but that will be we're releasing it on the 27th so the book is out today your last fiction book was home fire uh, which won the women's prize so how long has the writing process been have you been writing it sort of you know for a couple of years or has it been more recent I started it at the end of 2019. I mean, increasingly, I find that, you know, I write a book and then it's it's quite a while before I get another idea. Mm. And also, you know, with, with Home Fire in particular, because I was very fortunate with how well it did in the world, I spent a long time actually on sort of tour with it, going from one place to another. Yes, so there was no space yes. in my head to start the next thing. So with Best of Friends, I started writing it late 2019 which was an absolute godsend because my plan for 2020 was I'm going to say no to all public events and I'm going to <laughs> basically sit at my desk and write. So that worked out. <laughs> that worked out too well, too well. Too myself. well, yeah. Um, so I wrote it through 2020 and 21. And I remember when I sort of, the final version, sort of quite late in 21, handing it into my editors and thinking, we cannot have another lockdown because I don't know what I would do if I didn't have a book to write. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it must be, yes, in some ways, you know, obviously the, you know, the pandemic, no one had a particularly good time, but I can imagine that having a project such as writing a book at least was a bit like those days of, of military rule, <laughs> of reading to kind of, you know, deal yeah. with the, the monotony of it. Yeah. I can imagine on the reverse side, writing was also a, a great escape. It was, I mean, it's, and it's a nice analogy. And I think if I hadn't already started, it would have been harder because for me, beginnings are, you know, you sort of require just absolute concentration to try and figure out what you're doing, how you're mm. beginning. And there were so many distractions sort of around March and April 2020. Um, just in terms of looking at the news all the oh, time and checking in on people yeah. and all of that. and But because I was sort of already in it, I was sort of in the flow and I could just uh, keep going and, and I was lucky. 
Mm, yes. And of course, yeah, now it's at that crucial point, you know, I think from any authors we've spoken to, whether they're their debut or their experienced authors, um, such as yourself, it's such an interesting transition period where that book that, you know, obviously has been re- read by other people. I mean, the publication mm. process requires, you know, quite a few people to come across it. But that wonderful moment where it sort of goes out into the into the wild, as it were. You know, some authors have described that as it almost becomes its own entity then. You know, it's out there then. You've done your part and now it's kind of up to the readers to do theirs. Is that a a moment that you're always quite nervous for or apprehensive or excited? Or or do you just find, is it, you know, run of the mill, you don't think about it too much? Yeah, no, it's not run of the mill. Um, (laughs) But it is interesting. There is that process of letting go because of course i mean you know as you're saying when you're writing you have this incredible intimacy sort of you and the characters in the world you're building mm. and then you know bit by bit it, it starts going to the hands of other people and there is i do feel an odd little twinge in the beginning um when that happens and when i find that rather than writing the book i'm talking about writing the book and it feels yes. like a yes. sort of a, a state of remove I think it's a very necessary state of remove because by the time the book comes out, you, you need a little bit of distance so you yes. don't take everything so personally. It's, it's exciting, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who sits around in a bundle of nerves about things. I hope it does well in the world. I know already there are some people who have read it and, and have loved it mm. and that, you know, those early readers, it sort of really matters. And, of course, when the book goes out and you're aware that now a much wider group of people has, not just they're going to read it, but they're going to decide whether or not they'll pick it up and then whether or not they'll recommend it to their friends um, or whether the booksellers will be saying to people who come in, you know, try this one, try this one, Um, you know, and, and that is, it is a moment. And I'm very glad that it, you know, 20 plus years later hasn't become run of mill because Mm. I wouldn't want it to, you know, there is, there is that, that sense of, Oh, you know, what's going to happen now. And it still is, I have to tell you, a real kick to walk into a bookstore and see your book there. Oh, yes. I can imagine. Just as that never gets old. Or seeing it, I've always wondered what it it must be like if an author sees their book out in the wild in someone's hands, you know. Oh, my God. I I had that thing that all writers in, in, certainly all writers in London, I think, have a dream. Yes. That one day you'll be sitting on a tube. And and it happened to me once. I was sitting, it was one of my early novels. It was Burnt Shadows. And I sat down. Oh, I got into the tube carriage and there was a, a woman reading it. So I deliberately sat right across from her. And after about two minutes, I became incredibly self-conscious <laughs> because I thought I'm sort of looking at her and I'm wanting to judge her. <laughs> and it just felt so odd that I just moved away. You suddenly saw, I can imagine you sort of feel like, oh, I'm just sort of observing this person now. They have no idea. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, a very exciting moment seeing it on the tube. Yes, which is a very particular reading space. You know, I don't know, just seeing it on the tube. Yeah. It's such a classic yeah. image, the idea of someone, you know, sort of on their commute or in a busy tube, you know, stood there or sitting with a book there's a writer friend of mine whose whose name i won't mention but <laughs> but he was talking about, about how you know he had this moment because we were talking about how it is this weird thing that as writers we're thrilled by the idea of someone reading our book on the tube and, and one day he got on the tube and someone was reading his book and and unlike me he didn't sort of self-consciously move away he sort of waited a few seconds and leaned forward and said um i just i just have to say <laughs> that's my book you're reading and the person said 
Oh, is it yours? I'm sorry, I just found it lying here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a brilliant running joke. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, the person thought they'd. Oh, that's so yeah. funny. Yeah. The person thought that um, yeah. they had taken yeah. their... it. Discarded by someone. Yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's interesting, yes, when you're saying about the book going out into the world, is not all of our readers will be aware that as booksellers, we, of course, get advanced reading copies. I have right here with me now an advanced reading copy of Vesta Friends. And when you mentioned about the choice to pick up a book is always very interesting as well, because uh, we're very lucky here. We get lots of proofs sent to us and we take lots of them home, but we do get so many, it's hard to read all of them. And and that's, you know, one thing we talk about all the time is is not having enough time to read all the wonderful things coming out. So I imagine a lot of thought goes into particularly design of books in terms of what says to people, you know, this is a book that you will particularly enjoy. You know, I find that aspect of it absolutely fascinating. Do you as an author in terms of the the design of a book, is that something you have much of a say in or do you find that that those decisions are made elsewhere? No, the publishers are pretty good about consulting. I mean, I don't, I I never say, (laughs) here are my ideas because, you know, that would just be silly. I know something about (laughs) writing. I know nothing about book design and there are professionals who know about how to do that but they will send it my way and and i mean i love the i love the blue cover of best of friends there, there have been times when they'll send something i say well it's not quite right and and they're very good about mm. saying well you know it's your book we don't want you to be unhappy with with the look of it so yeah i mean i think you know with with this cover i think we we went through some font changes for ah, okay, yes. but, but it was one of those things where the moment i saw the image i thought yeah there's some, that's very striking Yes, that always interests me as well as, you know, the font choices. I mean, for me, that's just something I wouldn't even imagine how you'd start making that decision. But that's why, you know, there, as you said, there are people out there who's, that's their expertise. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they have such a, I think, a say in terms of how a book is. They say not to judge a book by its cover, but (laughs) I think as a bookseller, I know that that, that, that's not true. And, you know, sometimes we find ourselves saying, you know, oh, I don't feel the cover actually reflects the book. Read the Mm -hmm. pages because that is the bit and that's such a that's such an interesting aspect of it and in terms of when you initially you said that now you find that there's sort of a a cooling off period after reading Mm -hmm. of before the the new idea comes along was there I suppose this is a bit like a book that changed your life ideas don't necessarily happen this way but you know can you remember what were the initial sort of sparkings of this idea was it the was it the friendship between these two these two central characters or did it start elsewhere I've long wanted to write a novel that has friendship at its heart and not just any kind of friendship but mm. childhood friendship which I think mm. is is sort of so interesting and quite different to to adult friendships because your you know your childhood friends you become friends before you really know anything about your own character rather than anyone else's yeah. I mean you know you were four years old and you played hopscotch together and then 50 years later you're still friends and and I think you can grow up to be a very different person to your childhood friends you can have mm. completely different worldviews work in different areas you know live in different continents but you have that shared memory of childhood you know mm. how the other one grew up and what their family life was like and you have jokes that go back to when you were 10 years old that you're still laughing at and they see every version of you they see that the eight-year-old in you and the 15-year-old in you and there's something and and that in some ways the eight-year-old and the 15-year-old version of you still exists because of these other people yes i mean there are there are lots of ways to divide up the world including you know dog people versus cat people but i think <laughs> those who retain childhood friends and those who don't i think that's an interesting 
you know, yeah, that's an interesting one as a way to think about yes. people and their connection to their earlier life and themselves. So I'd always, always wanted to do a childhood friendship book. And I loved Elena Ferrente. And I thought what she did was so, so brilliant in there. But I also remember thinking too many stories of girls who are friends end up being a, a, a sort of heterosexual love triangle story. Right. You know, so it yes. becomes how they're really good friends and then this boy comes along. And of course, I mean, what Ferrente does is so much more sophisticated. But but it made me think how often I've seen that version of a story. And I thought, yeah. I really want to write against that as well. Mm. But yes. I did want to have these two friends who, who grow very different and I think so as I said I've long known one day I'll do the childhood friendship story but I think it was 2016 probably that that the specific details of it I started to wonder about and, and it's because you know 2016 between Brexit on one side of Atlantic and Trump on the other side you started to hear a lot of people having these conversations where they'd say I can no longer talk to this person who's been in my life forever because we see this differently. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, going back to that idea of the childhood mm -hmm. friend with whom you share a past and deep love in common, but now you're very, very different and you've seen the world mm -hmm. differently. And I thought, I'm going to, going to write a childhood friendship novel where, you know, I put a certain amount of pressure on that friendship. Yes. I don't allow them to ignore their differences. They have to confront them. And I wonder what will happen. And I wrote the whole book in a sense of, I wonder what will happen. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. That interests me because I was speaking to a, an author last week who said to me, I write mm -hmm. and I'm sort of learning about the stories as it goes along. You know, that's the process. And they were saying that they had come across people who, who will plan out. And they were saying, for me, I can't imagine doing that. That's not how it works for yeah, me. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very much a sort of make up as I go along. And that's a lot the, the fun yeah. of it is you to wake up and think, I, I don't know, I put them in this position. Now, what am I going to do? What? How yes. are they going to get out of this? Or where will it lead them? And I, and I like to think that some of that sense of unknowing and anticipation and excitement, you know, makes its way into the writing as well. Though having said that, when I actually read a book, I really can't tell if it's a, a writer who's planned or a writer who makes it up because it's no. really the end product no. that does what it does. Absolutely, yeah. yes. I'm glad you mentioned the Franti because, you know, I don't necessarily in these interviews always want to go, oh, yes, it made me think mm. of this book because that's helpful as a bookseller. But I don't mm. know if that's necessarily always a useful thing to say. But it made me think of that because that was a series mm. I I absolutely adored and just was really sucked into and and certainly reading that beginning segment of Best of Friends that's in Karachi, what, one thing I found for me that was quite similar is that I felt I learnt and experienced the city mm. through the characters' experiences of it in the same way that Naples I did through Ferranti's work. I feel from reading this and from reading Home Fire that your characters are just, you know, for me, they, they really pull you in and you really get to know them as people. And what I loved about this opening segment of Best of Friends was also meeting the city as well through them. And was that sense of place there quite important to you? It was, and I'm you know, so glad to hear you say that because I think what Ferenti does with Naples is brilliant. And it's not, it's not that she's sort of giving you a, a description of what the city looks like, but she's really showing what it feels like. And, and, uh, and to me, one of the really brilliant things in her novel is how she shows that if you live in violence, it gets inside you, mm. you know. Mm. 
and it works its way out in all these different kinds of ways. And I think part of what I wanted to do with, with Karachi in the 80s is, you know, what it feels like to live in this really odd mix. I mean, so I, I, it starts in 1988 mm. and it is these few months where military dictator dies and then you don't just have a return to democracy, but a 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, mm. comes to power. Yes. And for these two girls, it makes them feel everything is possible for girls. Mm. Like anything can happen. And, and then... You know, we won't give away too many plot spoilers, no, but there is, yes. you know, at, at the same time, they they have an encounter which reminds them that the vulnerability of, of being a 14-year-old girl in, in a very patriarchal, misogynist world. And, and, and they both respond very differently yes. to that. And I wanted that whole sense of, you know, that it's politics and patriarchy and violence and, and all kinds of things. They, they shape the world around you. But of course, if you're a novelist, it has to ultimately be about how these things work on the characters um, and how they live and breathe and love in in this particular world that they're growing up in. Again, that really interests me because, again, it reminds me of the same um, writer who was a debut author who I was speaking to last week on the podcast, uh, Tracy Lien, was saying that when discussing certain issues or ideas, she feels if they're done in a, a sort of a non and she she's uh, her background is um is in journalism, you know, she feels they're from a uh, that if it's done in a factual way, people are sort of aware of it and they're aware that maybe mm-hmm. you're trying to not necessarily change their mind, but sort of you know shape how they think. But that she said she found what was wonderful about fiction is experiencing and learning these things through characters can actually have much more of a profound and shifting effect on on how people think or see the world than sometimes just putting down the sort of the core facts can and um, again with this book you know there's so many ideas being sort of explored but that's under the surface we're not ultimately we are experiences are these two wonderfully drawn characters who who again just pull you into their story and you, you become so invested you know in them they become you know your own friends or people that you know yourself and that again one of the wonderful wonderful things about about this book but about also fiction in general thank you i mean it is you know i'm i'm always interested in in politics but not in a ju- i mean i'm interested in reading the work of journalists yes. but but in my writing i'm i am interested in you know how our very intimate life and how the choices we have, you know, are shaped by all these factors. And, and poli- you know, the large scale politics of the world is one of them. And in the book, of course, the, the girls are from very different families and, and you know, the importance of yes. how you grow up mm. and what you believe. But but it's all sort of, you know, everything gets gets tied in. I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, the very intricate web of the world we live mm. in. You know, this idea of sort of the individual who is sort of, this self-mythologizing creature who sort of comes out of nowhere and decides, this is what I want for my life and this is who I'm going to be. To me, it's such a nonsense, you know. Or, it, I mean, if it's, no, it's not a nonsense, but, but the fact that someone thinks they are capable of making every decision about oh. what their life is going to look like. I mean, that is also sort of so shaped by the world you're mm. in and what, it, what it's telling you. And it's, you know, I'm sort of interested in, in, in echoes and repercussions mm. and ripples. You know, so someone makes a decision here um, and the way that just, that, you know, depending on who they are and what decision they're making, the way that can just ripple out into the mm. world and then, then go right into the heart of a relationship of two best friends who 
you know, never knew the decision maker to begin with. That was a, another thing I really enjoyed is that, that element of friendship, but friendship where, you know, they're from quite different backgrounds mm. and seeing that, you know, how that affects their, their attitude to certain things. And again, it was one of those moments going back to what we were talking about earlier, where uh, again, people could sort of look at me and go, how much does Jack have in common with two girls growing up in Karachi in the 1980s and you know people go not much but the elements of class that are explored in that earlier part you know is um you know really spoke to elements of my own life and again it's something that is um is wonderful about reading and as you were saying earlier about connecting with those stories and those characters that don't reflect you know your your own personal life in terms of the the sort of the the bare facts. Yeah I think it's so interesting the class which is not really talked about enough but but how early on children feel it. So, you know, by the time they're 14, they they know very clearly that they don't come from a huge class divide. I mean, they're both middle class in some way, but one is sort of very rich upper middle class and the other one is more mm. solidly, you know, her family is sort of, you know, moving up the socioeconomic mm. ranks yes. middle yeah. class. But this, you know, they go to the same quite privileged private school, but they are very aware that even within the gradations of difference between them, they're aware of it. And when they're 14, they can just, you know, think, well, we both love George Michael and surely that's what matters. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's it's there. It's there from a very early stage, this awareness of it. And the awareness then that, that their families have different relationships to the idea of things like power and influence. Mm, yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, I think we've reached the end of our conversation. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful uh, to chat to you about the books that you've uh, enjoyed in the past and to talk about Best of Friends, which, as I've said, is out today and available from all bookshops, but of course, from mostly books as well, both in our store and on our website as well. Camilla Shamsi, thank you so much for joining us here at Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us.